I pity people who don't have an imagination. Are you that way? <clears throat> Lucy Maud Montgomery was a Presbyterian pastor's wife, and she wrote a series of really worthy uh, books for girls, and I have to admit I've read a bunch of them myself. I just love them. They're just great. She talks about nature in a really wonderful way, and she describes human nature in an incredible way. She must have been a really interesting, bright lady. And, and the, the key figure in a lot of her books is this little orphan, a red-headed orphan named Anne Shirley. And in the first book, when uh, Matthew Cuthbert comes to pick her up because he's going to adopt her eventually, she just lights him up with conversation. And 25 times... In the first chapter of the book, she talks to him about having an imagination. And she says, I pity people who don't have an imagination. Michael Card, I think I told you, didn't I, that I I talked Michael Card into sending me a copy of his book before publication on Matthew because by the time I'm done, the book comes out, I'll be done preaching on Matthew. And I wanted to use uh, Michael Card's insights as along with other things in my study of the Gospel of Matthew and pass them on to you so you might be the only church in America who has that privilege. Uh, and, and the books are called A Biblical Imagination. And Michael Card is a teacher of the Bible and a guy who loves the Lord deeply. And he talks a lot about biblical imagination. I want you to use your sanctified imagination today. As a matter of fact, every time you pick up the Bible, you ought to ask God to give you a vivid imagination. You are not supposed to study the Bible without using your imagination. Never want to read your Bible without that. Today we're going to consider a wonderful story from the end of Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 19, there is the story of the rich young ruler. Remember that? And then there is the story following that of the workers in the field, the ones that, you know, they complained because they felt like they should have been paid more because they worked longer. Remember that? And there was that story. It was followed then by the third prediction that Jesus gave of his death and resurrection, a really kind of a dark prediction of his torture and his death and his resurrection. And then after that, remember what happens? You do, you do remember what happens after that, right? He predicts his death, and then his disciples say, so after you're gone, who's going to be in charge? And they actually send their mother to, a couple of them send their mother. That was the section there. And now we come to this. And I think what you're going to see today, if you're perceptive, you're going to see that this gem of a story, this beautiful little story that's tucked in here, arranged the, uh, upon in a, in, a, in a wonderful agreement in heaven between Matthew and the Holy Spirit, arranged just the way it's supposed to be arranged, this story kind of lands on our heart, especially when we consider it where it came from after these other stories are given. And you're going to see that today. And I, I've been excited for you because this is one of those kinds of messages that ought to be a real help to you today. It ought to be a real help to you because I know that every one of you comes in here burdened with personal needs are burdened with the needs of people that you deeply love. And there are just things that need to happen in your life that you can't do alone. There are things that need to happen in our world that only Jesus Christ can do. There are things that need to happen in this wonderful church that we, that we call Evangel that only Jesus can do. But he will do those things when people humbly call upon him Not when they have enough money, not when they jockey for position, not when they try to avoid suffering, but when they call out for mercy. 
We're going to see that in this gorgeous little gem of a story. Let's read it now instead of just talking about it. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still, and He called to them, and He said, What do you want me to do for you? (laughs) What do you want me to do for you? And they said to Him, Lord, that our eyes may be open." So Jesus had compassion, and he touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. told you it was a gem of a story. Lord, we ask you as we look into your word that you would give us that special illumination of the Holy Spirit. And and don't let anybody go to sleep, don't let anybody get bored. Lord, I I pray you just attack their heart with truth. (laughs) In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. Let's use our imagination. Imagine the weather that day, spring of the year. We know that. A a week before Jesus is going to die, Jesus predicted his death for the third time. This is the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho is north and and west. It's on the coast of the Dead Sea at the bottom of the uh, Jordan River, but it's up to Jerusalem, even though it's south, because Jerusalem, Jericho is 300 feet below sea level. We got to go there, and it kind of freaks you out when you pass the sign that says sea level, and then you keep going down. It was really a beautiful place, very interesting place. Don, I ain't telling what happened there with you. It's like, if you ask me afterward, maybe privately I could, and I have pictures, but but let's not go into that right now. Uh, Went to Jericho. That was the place with the guy slathering lotion on your arm, right? That's Jericho, yeah. But we won't talk about that, because it's church, and... Did you buy that stuff, or... Yeah, that was Jericho. Now, Jericho, Mike is laughing, and that's good. Jericho was like a resort place. Jericho was a place at that time that was especially balmy, kind of like the Palm Springs of the area. Herod wintered there, and he had a, of course, he had fortress palaces everywhere, but he had one there, an important one there. It was there that he died, this fortress palace in Jericho, because it was a place that was a desirable place to go. And wealthy people would travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and then back up. And it was a mountainous road. It was a time of the year, spring of the year, a warm, warm time of the year. Now imagine what the terrain was like. Imagine what was the road from... You've heard about the Jericho Road, right? What was the road to Jericho or really the road from Jericho to Jerusalem? Because Jesus is moving in this passage. He's going up to Jerusalem. He's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. It's a climbing road. It's a dangerous mountain road. It has cliffs and a wadi in the, in the, in the Middle East. Um, a, a dry riverbed, a small dry riverbed would be called a wadi. It would fill with water when the rain came. It would be empty when there was no rain. But this road traced a huge wadi, a huge canyon, if you will. A kind of precipitous, kind of like awe-inspiring canyon. To stand on the lip of it and look down into it is like you'd pull your children back. It's a huge canyon. And this dangerous winding road follows this mountain up and down. It's a, it's a, it's a rigorous six-hour trek for a healthy person. It would take me about ten years today, I think. 
the terrain was, uh, was, 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 was fascinating. Jesus would often go out into this kind of wilderness area. You know, in the, in the, in the Holy Land in Galilee where he's from, it, it could be beautiful and lush. And then in Jerusalem, it was, it was, a, it was a bit of an elevation. 3,000 feet in elevation, so a significant climb right from Jericho, 300 feet below sea level to 3,000 feet above sea level would be a significant, uh, difficult climb. But Jesus loved to go out into those wilderness areas, and they are stark. He loved to have fellowship with uh, the Father out in these wilderness areas. And this canyon-like river valley was followed by the road. It was remote. It was severe. And because it was that way, it was a great place for highwaymen and robbers to hide. And often because wealthy people would be going down to Jerusalem, it would be alone. It would be a great place for a highwayman to mug them and rob them. And the story of the Good Samaritan is in this exact setting, on this exact road. But on the day that Jesus and his disciples were traveling this road, it wouldn't have been particularly dangerous because... It was Passover time, and people were, religious people, were thronging together in a pilgrim throng and going up to Jerusalem, and there would be a large group of people, and so it would be relatively safe, even though a rigorous trip. Imagine that. Imagine Jesus. Just use your imagination. What would Jesus have been thinking? What would have been going on in Jesus' mind? No, seriously, come on, work with me. We're not going to be here that long. What would Jesus have been thinking? What would you be thinking if you were going to die? What would you be thinking if you knew ahead of time that you were not only going to die, you are going to be tortured to death? What would be going through your mind if you had a vivid knowledge that you would be betrayed by religious men, tortured by Romans, and that you would die and be separated from your loved ones, that your mother would watch you die? In your humanity, can you imagine that that would be a heavy burden for a person to have on their mind? I mean, if you've had a bad day, how good are you with other people? They have a little something on your mind or a project you're working on or something is not working quite right. Do you take a lot of time to help other people? Are you pleasant and loving and kind and selfless? Are you... Or when you got something on your mind, can everybody in the house kind of tell? Jesus would have had something on his mind, something deep on his heart, something cosmic is boiling in Jesus' chest as he goes up to Jerusalem to die. On top of that, imagine how he would have felt about these disciples who don't seem to quite ever get it right, and he's about to die and turn the whole business over to them. (laughs) Empowered by the Holy Spirit, no small thing. That must have also affected how Jesus felt. Imagine what that must have been like, climbing the road to Jerusalem to die. I love to watch my boy Dan play soccer. He's He's like a lot of your kids. Loves to play sports. Don't you love watching your kids play sports? Upward, our football teams. I I, I was I was kind of confined to the chair yesterday because I can't get around right now. But I I saw the little things coming across. My son ran for a touchdown. He received the ball and re- returned a kickoff for a touchdown. Every once in a while I get to see Danny play soccer. He's always been a really good athlete. He's a fast runner. He has like two gears fast and like warp speed. Like 
So when he plays soccer, it's kind of fun to watch him. I watch him, and I know when he's really going to take off because his head goes down like this. It just, I just know his, I know his body language. He'll be running with an with opponent, and then it'll be like he's going to really go, and his head will drop a couple inches, and he'll just go into another gear. It's, for an old guy, it's a thing to behold. You know, you just, oh. When Jesus is going down the road of Jerusalem, I imagine that his head is dropped, and he's on his mission, and this is a serious matter. Wouldn't it be understandable for him not to allow any interruptions at this time when he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders? Imagine what it would have been like to be a blind man. Imagine, take a day and put a blindfold on, right? I mean, what would it have been like to be a blind man? A beggar, of course. A beggar. Imagine the destitution. Imagine the desperation. Imagine the humiliation of that. A blind man. What would it have been like not to ever be able to look in your lover's eyes or not to have a lover? Be able to see the color of your girl's hair in the sunlight or watch the sunrise or watch the moon rise or see the silver path that casts on the water. You can smell the flowers, but you can never see their color. What would it have been like to be a blind man? And you're poor. You're a beggar. You live because you stay where other people that are wealthy, and you live on their, you exist on their pity, and you beg for just a little something. And you're an irritation to people, and people kind of want to walk by and ignore you. What would it have been like the, the blind men are sitting by the road. We know, according to Mark, one of them is named Bartimaeus. They're sitting by the road, and there's the normal you know, noise of, of people traveling on the road. But now there must be a, there must be a greater noise because now there, there's a crowd coming. There's a cluster, a throng coming, and, the, and the, the decibels rise. It's louder. There's more talk, and maybe even the, the children are shouting, Jesus is coming, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you begin to think, Jesus, I, I've heard of this, Jesus. Maybe they've met him, maybe not. Maybe they, they must have heard of him. And, and Jesus is the one who heals people who are sick. The lame walk sometimes. Jesus is the one who can raise the dead. Jesus is the one who heals the paralytic. He heals the leper. Jesus is the one who walks on water. Jesus is the one who feeds thousands. And I've even heard that he heals Gentiles and sometimes he restores sight to blind people. And so you, you push your way to the front of the crowd and you think in your one last desperate attempt to be delivered from this terrible curse that's on you, the beggars <laughs> begin to cry out, O oh Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Oh, this is a small sentence, but it's so full of rightness. Lord, they call him. Son, it might have been a title of respect, but it was probably more. And I'll tell you why in a moment. And son of David, they use a messianic title. They cry out, and they're not shy. Have mercy on us. And they say the right thing. You owe me, God. They don't say, you owe me, God. They don't say, why did you make me blind? They don't say, this isn't fair. They don't say, you heal other people, why don't you heal us? They just say, have mercy on us. This is a prayer you might want to remember. 
what a beautiful prayer it is. Imagine if you were there. Imagine the people around you, they rebuke you. Shh, get back quiet. This is Jesus. He's busy. He's important. And they tell him to be quiet. You read the parallel accounts. It's beautiful to read a parallel, you know, New Testament, God, harmony of the Gospels, and just see the different details that are there. You read the parallel accounts, and it's like he goes from zero to hero real quick here. Go back, sit down. Jesus stops, says, I want to talk to him. They go, hey, he wants to talk to you. I'm his friend. You know, it's kind of the, the feeling that you get. The people rebuke him, or them. They don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want him shouting. They don't want to make an a spectacle of himself. I mean, after all, this is a busy man. This is an important man. But Jesus, he stops. This must have been quite a moment right there. Because you know when Jesus stopped, and the beggars couldn't have seen it because they were blind, you know that the crowd was hushed in silence and awe, like, what is going to happen now? And Jesus turns to these men that are just crying out, desperately crying out, Jesus turns, stops, and he goes to them. And you know that crowd got quiet. And they were going to wait. What is he going to do? What is he going to say? And Jesus says, just the simplest word, what do you want me to do for you? It's interesting because you think, what would a beggar want? Money. That's what a beggar wants. They, they sit by the road and they beg for money. That's what they want. From everybody. Just give me some money. So if I have a family, I can feed my family. So I have a bit of food today. So I don't die out here. Jesus says, what do you want? It's an interesting task, really. Their answer is going to be important. If they say, could I have some money? And he chooses to give them money. Well, then that's helpful. <laughs> but if, he sa- if they say heal my blindness, and he heals their blindness, their lives change. But if there's something more to this phrase, O Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us, something more might be happening than they get a meal for the day, or they get out of their darkness and their blindness. And if you read a book of Mark, you see about at least Bartimaeus of these two, the word there, your faith has made you whole, Jesus tells them, is sozo. It's the saving faith word. It's probably true that he was saved, believing. So, he's, so he, they ask for their sight because that's what they sense is their greatest need, their physical desperate need. And Jesus throws in a little something else along with their sight, at least for one of them, and that is the confidence of eternal life forever. told you it was a gem of a story, didn't I? I, uh, we had, did I tell you that Lois and I have two grand, two little grand, we have three little grandsons and a granddaughter, but I took two of our grandsons out, Kyle and Ollie, I took them out the other day. I was trying to think of something to do for them, something just frivolous, grandfatherly, you know? I didn't take them to get salad, for pity's sake, that's a mother's job, you know? I took them to the Urban Swirl, because I'm all cool like that, you know? Have you ever been to the Urban Swirl? That's what I thought. You're not as cool as I am. No, there's only one. It's over, it's over in Mishawaka, and it's a, it's a yogurt place. You get yogurt. I mean, that's healthy, right? And, and then you put on it whatever you want. Gummy bears, sour patch, worms, whatever a guy could want on his yogurt. 
and, and they're all fruit flavored, so it's a very healthy place. And so I, I didn't ask Elizabeth and Kyle, can I take the grandsons to the urban swirl and fill them full of refined sugar and high fructose corn syrup? It's a little die of hyperactivity like our grandfather. I didn't ask. I just did it. I just took him. And it was one of those things where you basically want to lavish. Yeah, you're a grandfather. You understand. You want to lavish love on them. And so their eyes are really big. They go, urban squirrel. We love urban squirrel. That's what they call it. The urban squirrel. So they're like in the back of my Jeep going, urban squirrel. I'm like, yes, I'm hitting a home run here. I take them in and they're like, they know what they're doing, man. They're back there. They get the, you know, it's sold by weight. So they don't have any small cups. You know, it's just like, hey, wait, whoa, whoa, easy. Let me help you with this. Cups are all really big. I'm like, you know, they're like, go ahead, man, put stuff on. I'm like, easy now, you know. Like, I, yeah, mortgage the house for this, you know. And so they seriously, they get this, uh, they get this uh, frozen yogurt, and that, that's kind of like in, in the base there. And, and then they literally put this a, a garish, you know, combination of horrible things. Uh, seriously, gummy worms, chocolate chips, M&Ms, sour worms. Just every, I got pictures. It's just horrible. And they loved me for this. And I loved doing it. It was just so cool. And then we went outside and I watched them eat. And it was hard not to cry. Because when you love a little guy like that, you just want to indulge them. You just want to help them. You just want to give them things. You want, every, you want them to have everything that they need and a whole bunch of stuff they want to. And I'm a human father. And this, this Bible that we cherish over and over again tells us of the Heavenly Father that longs to lavish his gifts on his children. He longs to give his very best things to his children. And then he watches their face while they enjoy them. And it thrills his heart to know that he's making them happy. And he gives us what we want lots of times. And sometimes he gives us what we really need and he withholds what we want because it really wouldn't be good for us to have what we want all the time. And he knows that because he's the perfect Heavenly Father. Is that your God? Is that the God that you were singing about today? That greater God than any God, small g, than anyone. The one who is merciful and he has a heart of compassion. So what is it that you would say to him today? If he were to say to you, what do you need today? What's breaking your heart today? What is it that you wrestle with and you just can't overcome? What is it that's just crushing your heart and messing up your life? What is it that's hurting the people who love you the most? What do you need from me today? He still asks that question. He still answers that question to people who will say, It's mercy, Lord. It's mercy that I need. What is it that you need? Think about that for a while. You need healing. You need forgiveness. You need deliverance from your shame of your past sin and guilt. You need love. You need security. You need something, but you just aren't sure what it is. Do you know that Jesus is compassionate and merciful? Do you know that he is eager to give his best gifts to his children? You have a problem? Think about it. Does someone you love have a big, insurmountable problem? And you lay down at night, sometimes they come to your mind and you can't make things right for them and you just think, oh, somebody I love needs the Lord. Did you know that you could tell him he's asking you, even right now? I just hope that as I prepared this message and thought about this text, I thought about everyone. I tried to think of as many of you as I could think about and what you might 
If you were to write on a piece of paper, what is it that's breaking your heart? What is it that you need the most? What is it that you would ask of the Lord when he says to you, what, how can, what can I do for you? I just thought about what a sweet, happy Lord's Day morning it would be if God's people all over the church just said, okay, what would you write on that paper? you say, I'm going to give this to you. I'm asking you for this. And if he chooses to touch you, that will happen. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, sometimes it doesn't happen. What about that? What about when it doesn't happen? What about when I ask God for, you know, yogurt with gummy bears every day and, and he starts saying no to me? What about that? Just a quick suggestion to you. Matter of fact, I got a little slide. I'm going to skip this and show you this. These three things cry out to God to deliver you. And if he doesn't choose to deliver you, cry out to God for discernment, for understanding. Why did God let this happen? What good is God bringing into my life through this evil? Because that's the way he does things. Sometimes he doesn't immediately deliver you. Sometimes he doesn't deliver you at all. But he gives you something better. He's doing something good, and this we must trust him for. So you cry out to God for deliverance. And you keep crying out to God for deliverance. And then, whether he, if he delivers you, you praise him and you thank him. If he chooses not to deliver you, you cry out for discernment, for wisdom. Why did God let this happen? Make a list of possible good things that could come to you and to your family and to the church and to the kingdom because God has not delivered you, because he's still good. He left some people in their blindness when he died and went back to, and rose again and went back to heaven. He left some people still sick. And these blind beggars that were healed one day died. Imagine when they went to heaven. Third thing is a cry out to God for grace to glorify Him through your hardship. Dr. Jim Greer, most of you don't know. Some of you know him really well. And you, you owe him because he was one of the former pastors of this church. And he, by God's grace, went on from here to distinguish himself a great deal. <laughs> by the grace of God working in his life, he wouldn't want glory in his wife they went to Cedarville, and they trained many, many people to serve the Lord. And he's this doctrinal fidelity and just brilliant man and capable. He's got this tenderness about him, this, uh, this intimacy as a pastor, and yet this brilliance like a scholar, a very rare combination. He went to Grand Rapids, and he trained people there, and he has cancer right now. And he probably has about three months to live if a miracle doesn't happen, and he's in a lot of pain. And I'm just reading what he writes, and... He basically said this in you know, He speaks at Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London. It's just kind of a cool thing. He was here one night. If you were here, you won't forget that message that he preached about our Savior, Jesus. He called the investiture of the Lamb. That was a great message. It's on the podcast. You can go back and listen to it. But I noticed his prayer request, you know, was, was that uh, he, he, he probably only has three months to live. And he intends to live the rest of his life to the glory of God. He was going to die faithfully singing the praises of his God while he suffers through God's providence, his pain that he's going to suffer through. He's going to die faithful to God. And that's what I'm saying here. You say, God, deliver me from this. Deliver my loved one from this. And then if he chooses not to, then you say, God, help us to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And if he doesn't understand why, you don't understand why he's doing this, then you say, God, help me to be faithful to give you honor even while I'm suffering so that people can look at me and say, I don't understand that. That's inexplicable. That's not understandable. This is a person who's suffering and they're still faithful to God. Though he slay me, yet I will I trust him. That's what Job did. 
Now, it's interesting because if you look at this, I want you to see this here. Notice where this story is set. And then, again, it has a greater force in our hearts when we see in chapter 19, you have the story of the rich man. He's blinded by money and possessions, right? Remember, the rich young ruler goes away. He's blinded spiritually by his money and possessions. You got that, right? And then there are the disciples. They're blinded by their work and wages because he's aiming at them with that story about the workers that were in. You know, Peter says before that story, hey, we've served you a long time. What will we have? And he's saying it isn't about wages. It's about gifts. It's grace, right? Remember that? Remember that message? It's not a merit program. It's a mercy offer. (laughs) And he's trying to tell them, so he tells them that story. And then the the family comes and appeals for John and James uh, for a place in the kingdom. The family is blinded by the potential for power. And that story in chapter 20, verses 17 through 26. But these blind men, they see things very clearly, and they cry out for mercy. Get it? Isn't it cool how the book is put together? Isn't it wonderful how God arranged his book? It's pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's the Bible. And so he puts these stories together so that the, the, the person that you would consider the lowest on the rung is actually the person who gets it right, the one who knows enough to cry out for mercy. Now, Jesus, you understand, is training his disciples. That's the whole thing. Because he wants them to receive his mercy. He wants them to receive his gifts. He wants them to know they're justified by grace through faith alone. He wants the blind man to, to see and understand that he's justified by grace through faith alone. It's not a religious system that they have to keep. Not a bunch of inexplicable rules somebody gave you that you don't know why. It is the mercy offer of Jesus who died for your sins himself on the cross. And that is enough because his righteousness is enough for you. And it's not your righteousness that saves you. It is his righteousness that saves you. You believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to work righteousness in you, but he immediately sees you as righteous before God. This is the gospel. What powerful and wonderful truth that that is. That's, that's what this whole area needs. You have drunk of God's mercy. You must show other people where they can drink of God's mercy. That's our calling. That's why we're here. We will not be fulfilled Christians until we're involved in that. But first, you go get your blind eyes healed. First you go to Jesus and you see how compassionate he is. First you talk to him about the problems that you have. He understands and he will not rebuke you. And then you will have something to talk about, won't you? And you just talk about to Jesus about what he delivered you from. Had a guy come in here. Travis, are you here? Travis, that came Wednesday night. Are you here with us today? And Travis is going to be with us. I'm not seeing you right now. Okay, Travis came on Wednesday night. And he came up to me. And he said to me, if you were here Wednesday night, you got in on this. He came up to me and he said, Pastor, I, I uh, wonder if you could pray for me. I'm a heroin addict. and I'm just in, I, I, The other night I just was beside myself. I knew I needed God in my life. I needed to be delivered from this. So I came to your church. It was 10 o'clock at night on Tuesday night. Travis came to this church, a heroin addict. And he knelt on the steps of this church and he asked God to help him came to this church, a heroin addict, and knelt on the steps of this church that you have built for the glory of God. And, you, and he said, God, help me. I need your help. I can't do it alone. Then he came to prayer meeting, and he allowed us to pray for him publicly that God would deliver Travis from heroin addiction. Would you please pray for him that God would miraculously deliver him, that he would glorify God, and that we would know there's a living God who shows compassion through the prayers of, of his people. Would you pray for Travis? Think about that. Let's not get off on little, you know, I know there's a buzz about, you know, you change a few things and people don't like it. I understand that. I'm going to read you a couple of things and I want to be gentle and very loving. 
Okay? Saying this as a loving pastor that spent hours in prayer about this. Listen to what I'm about to tell you in a very gentle, very humble, very loving way. Listen carefully. If men don't wear suits and ties, if ladies wear slacks instead of skirts to church on Sunday, it is no scandal. It is no sin. But if we don't do all we can to pray and seek and make disciples while we can, with what we have been given, and where God has placed us, with what we know, it is a scandal. The rhythm in our music, if it's live or if it's recorded, it is no scandal. It is no sin. The rhythm in our music, if it's live or if it's recorded, it is no scandal. It is no sin. The Bible is silent about that, and the Bible is sufficient. But if we complain or if we gossip more than we pray for revival, more than we pray for those who are far from God, that is a scandal. That is something for which we should repent. If we have coffee in our hallway, instead of coffee around the corner in the classroom, that's not a scandal. That's not a sin. If our coffee is in the hallway, and it's not in the classroom, it's not a sin, it's not a scandal. Would we sing about the little brown church in the veil if they didn't have dinner on the grounds? And would dinner be worth anything if they didn't serve coffee with it? God's people always have eaten together. God's people have always shown hospitality to one another in close proximity to their worship. They, they have loved God and have, they've had love feast for one another. This is about loving one another. It's about welcoming our community to us. It's about showing hospitality. It is no scandal to move our coffee into the hallway of the church. It is, however, a scandal if we don't do everything that we can to make Christ Jesus known to people in the short moment that we have while they're kneeling on the steps of our church praying for deliverance. And that's what we should be talking about. And that's what we should be praying about. And that's what we should be working on. So if somebody wants to talk to you about something else, tell them, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about lost people. I want to talk about how to form a team that can pray. That's what I want to do. I want to pray. I don't want to talk about that. If you want to talk about that to me, I'll talk with you about it, but I will guarantee you this is what you're going to hear right here. And I'm not going to stop saying that because it would be a scandal to stop saying that. It's like watching people drown and saying, well, good night, look at this, we have a life preserver right here. Why don't they just swim over and get it? We've got people out there drowning, they don't know enough to come to church. They don't have a lot, they're not enlightened in their souls to understand, many of them even an invitation. Some will come, but many won't. We want to figure out ways to get the life preserver to the people who are drowning. That is not a scandal. It's a scandal if we don't do it. That's not a change, folks. This church has innovated throughout its life in order to reach lost people from the bus ministry to the Awana to a bunch of other crazy things that you've done, some of which you don't want to talk about, and others were the greatest victories this church has had because somebody innovated. So I'm not shy about telling you that. This is what this gospel is about. It's about who is Jesus and how are we going to get Jesus groups going out there where they need Jesus groups. That's what it's about. So I'm not going to apologize for that at all. I'm not going to let somebody say, well, like your doctrinal compromise, it is not a doctrinal compromise not to wear a tie. Jesus didn't wear a tie. It's not a doctrinal compromise to have coffee in a hall. 
It isn't. The Bible is silent about that. It is not a doctrinal compromise to have music with rhythm that's live instead of music that's with rhythm that's recorded. Our kids know that if we dig in on that, we're hypocrites. And that's going to drive them away from Jesus, and we don't want that. So I'm just telling you straight up. I didn't mean to be this direct. I hope you understand in my soul... I'm just trying to be honest and straightforward and get this church moving forward instead of like, you know, nitpicking at each other. So let's go. Let's move this thing forward. A woman, a young woman, her husband has lost his job. He's disabled. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have a job. She's got little children to take care of. School's coming on. She doesn't have school clothes for these little kids. And she desperately just wants to dress her little kids in some new school clothes. She doesn't have the gas to get the kids to school, let alone to get some nice new school clothes for them. She doesn't know what she's going to do. They've lost their home. She's just desperate. She's far from God, and she knows it. This is a true story. She's driving to get her little girl to school, and she runs out of gas. She doesn't have any more money. She doesn't have any more gas. And she doesn't know what to do, so she just breaks down crying. And a man comes along, an older man. He comes along, and he sees her there, and he says to you, to us, to her, is there something I can do to help you? And she says, I just ran out of gas. I don't have any gas. I don't have any money. He said, it's okay. I have gas. I'll give you my gas. So this old man, this, el- this old man that was older than her, put the gas in her car. And then before he left, you know what he did? He said to her, would it be all right if I prayed with you? And then this stranger who we don't know prayed for this one that we love very much, that God would help her. you were to ask me, if Jesus were to ask me today, what would you like to have from me? One of the things I would say is that that girl and her husband and those little kids would know and love God and walk with God. That a church in their area would just embrace them. It wouldn't be like a censorious, nitpicky church, but a big-hearted, great-hearted church. A church with love and joy that knew Jesus, that would come around her even though she's kind of messed up and her family's kind of messed up. It would stay with her as long as it took in order to get her on her feet and going for God. That's what I would ask God for. That's what I'm saying today. What a powerful thing it is. If we could have an imagination as a church, if we could ask God to give us a new way to imagine church, a whole new way to imagine church that the church would go in a way like we've never gone before. What could happen could be wonderful. I'd like you to stand and pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, today for these that have gathered. And Lord, I thank you for this sweet gem of a story that just basically teaches us you're compassionate, you're merciful, and the people that get what you are willing to give. They get it when they cry out to you for mercy, not when they impress you with how good they are. And I'm so grateful for that, Lord. I'm crying out to you publicly right now, God, that you would make this a mighty church, that you would give what the folks need to them, what they think they need uh, health, they think they need help with their money. They think they need help with their marriage relationships. They feel like they need help with their kids. And they do, but you know that they need Jesus more than anything. Eternal life and abundant life. And so I pray, give the people what they need today. And I pray that in in so doing, that they would just rejoice and worship you and unite our body together, I pray, in a oneness so that the world will know that you are Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's see you at six.